0: It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. I just got off the air at Fox News talking about how some of the uh, liberal pundits and commentators and show hosts and so forth are really getting angry. I called it a backlash to the backlash. So, first you have the election closer than expected, as everybody on the planet knows, and then you have the networks on Saturday morning, all projecting a win for Joe Biden, as everybody on the planet knows. And then you have the president refusing to concede, and many of his supporters uh, agreeing with him, believing him, stolen election, widespread fraud, although we haven't seen the evidence yet. Again, as everybody on the planet knows. But now, I talked about this a little bit on the podcast on Friday, uh, where you had uh, commentators like Sonny Hostin at The View. We talked about this on Media Buzz on Sunday as well, saying that the people who voted for Trump, they're selfish and they're un. American. And I can't even wrap my head around this. You know, first of all, blaming the voters is never a good look. 71 million people voted for President Trump. Are they all just bozos, uneducated, yahoos, racists, and all of that? Of course not. They're Americans with a complex series of views, depending on who they are and what their motivation is. Call them un-American is deeply offensive. And then the, the new element here is Whoopi Goldberg, Um, you know, going off on these Trump supporters on The View, uh, saying that they need to suck it up, they need to accept defeat, just like we accepted defeat and we sucked it up four years ago, and all of that. Um, And saying that, you know, all of our voters, we stood out there for hours to vote, and then you're sort of denigrating that. So what you have here, folks, is an angry country, an angry country on both sides, reflecting the polarization that has gone on for years. And when I say in my column today on Fox News, and perhaps you've heard me say on the air, when I will say to you now is this. Yes, as a, a card-carrying journalist, it's very clear to me. ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, AP have all looked at the numbers in Pennsylvania and Arizona Nevada. Georgia and said that Joe Biden has an insurmountable lead, that Donald Trump can't catch up, and that we don't see any evidence of widespread fraud. If there is evidence, obviously we should we should, and will cover the hell out of it. And yet, people aren't accepting that. Uh, the people who voted for Trump, many Republicans are believing um, in his refusal c- to concede, are believing it was a stolen election, are believing there's all kinds of fraud, and why? Part of it is they don't Trust the media to be a fair referee. This is the thing. This is the price that we have paid many organizations for the last six years, really, overwhelmingly negative coverage of this president. So when it comes down to a close election, we say, hey, it's Biden. Look, he got over here and the votes just came in from Maricopa County, and what about Philadelphia? Okay, we say it's Biden, and many people don't believe us. Now, Unlike in 2016 when Hillary conceded, in uh, 2012 when Mitt Romney conceded, in 2008 when John McCain conceded, in 2004 when John Kerry conceded, the president is not conceding. People around him are telling him he can't win. Uh, They're saying this anonymously to reporters, but he has dug in and he is saying fraud, stolen election, thieves, he's used that word. And we in the media cannot be shocked that a good chunk of the country believes him and not us because that's the way we have conducted ourselves. That's the way we have conducted ourselves in the way we have covered this president. Uh, By the last few months of this election, there wasn't even any pretense about it. You know, most organizations, and this is not all journalists, and there are journalists whose work I respect and I like and I think they try to be fair. But increasingly it was just Trump is a liar, Trump is a fraud, Trump is a racist, uh, just acting like the opposition party. And now we are paying the price for that. That makes me sad to say that. I'm a lifelong journalist. I believe in the business. I would like people to believe us when decision desks at networks as different as MSNBC and Fox all agree that Biden is the winner. The world is treating Joe Biden as the president-elect, but nevertheless, this is where we are. Let's, get, let's bring back the buzzers here. Story number one has to do with Bill Barr. Well, you knew it was only a matter of time before the Attorney General uh, weighed in. And while I'm a little bit troubled while I'm, what I'm about to read you, I think the initial reports on this were hyped, that what Barr is doing is not quite as um, out there, is not quite as extreme as some headlines suggested. So, New York Times plays it pretty straight. Uh, William Barr wading into President Trump's unfounded accusation, see, there you go, of widespread election irregularities. I prefer unproven, but we'll see. Told federal prosecutors yesterday they were allowed to investigate, quote, specific allegations of voter fraud before the results of the presidential race are certified. Now, why is this a big deal? I mean, on one level, he's just telling the various U.S. attorneys they can use the power they already have to do this. He's not giving them any new power. He's not ordering up specific investigations. Um, But this was so offensive to a career official who oversees investigations for DOJ of voter fraud. His name is Richard Pilger that he stepped down from that post, Uh, according to an email that was obtained by the Times. uh, He didn't quit DOJ, just as I'm giving up this job and I'm going to go do something else. I'm not going to be a supervisor. Um, Again, Barr said specific instances of investigative steps in some cases. The Times says the memo was carefully worded. Prosecutors had the authority, but he warned, this is Barr warning, this kind of got lost in the headlines, that specious, speculative, fanciful, or far-fetched claims should not, be a basis for initiating federal inquiries. Now, the problem here is the sort of history of DOJ, and also the problem here is Bill Barr, because intervening in the Michael Flynn case, intervening in the Roger Stone case, he has given many, many people in this country the impression that he is uh, the president's personal lawyer as opposed to the nation's chief law enforcement officer. So that's why this will play into that criticism. And Barr had to know this. He's a smart guy. He'd been attorney general before, as you know, as some of you know, for George H. W. Bush. There's a longstanding DOJ practice that is supposed to keep federal law enforcement from affecting the outcome of elections. So um, it is that you don't really get involved in investigating an election until that election has been certified, and then you can look into fraud or allegations of whatever. Um, Barr writing, given the voting in our current elections has now concluded, yeah, I authorize you to pursue substantial allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities, prior to the certification of elections in your jurisdiction. So he's kicking it over to the 93 U.S. attorneys. Uh, Background, a Justice Department official telling the Times that Barr had authorized scrutiny of a couple of areas. One, the allegation that there were ineligible voters in Nevada and backdated mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. Republicans have made both charges without evidence. It may well be that there are 50 people did this, 100 people did this, maybe 500 people did this. The problem for Trump and the Republicans is it's not going to be enough to overcome a 150,000 vote lead in Michigan or a 50,000 vote lead in Pennsylvania, in my view, without widespread fraud, which, as I will just say, remains unproven. Oh, here's the spin. Barr has privately told Department of officials that any dispute should be resolved in court by the campaigns themselves, according to three people briefed on the conversations, He said he did not see massive fraud and that most of the allegations of voter fraud were related to individual instances that did not point to a larger systemic problem. So this was leaked to The Times and presumably other news outlets, but Barr is not saying that publicly. Publicly, you know, maybe this is even his way of keeping the president satisfied that he's saying, look, if there's evidence, my U.S. attorneys will follow it. um, But we're not going to be, you know, ginning up investigations based on specious." are speculative claims. Ah, but critics of Mr. Barr immediately condemned the memo as a political act that undermined the Justice Department's typical independence from the White House. DOJ policies prohibit prosecutors from taking overt steps like questioning witnesses or securing subpoenas to open a criminal investigation of any election-related matter until after voting results have been certified. So that doesn't happen until mid-December. So the only thing they can do in the meantime, apparently, is, um, you know, take other more indirect steps rather than uh, interrogating witnesses or issuing subpoenas, which probably would limit the scope of what they can do when you're thinking about it. It's just a few short weeks until the presumed uh, certification in the early part of December. All right, story number two. How's this playing with the GOP? Well, here's a Washington Post story talking about Mitch McConnell. If you see Mitch McConnell on television, you see that he is absolutely saying the president has every right to investigate or to pursue these fraud, fraud claims. And, and he's right. I agree with Mitch McConnell. The president has every right. He can file all the lawsuits he wants. He can say whatever he wants. Now, Does that hurt his reputation? Are many people seeing him as uh, laying the groundwork for four years of crying the election was rigged and I really won and I should still be the leader and Biden did all these terrible things and if I was there, it would have happened? Yeah, that's true. But McConnell, you know, has always had this balancing act as the leader of the Senate Republicans, but also as a guy who had to deal with the president of his own party. So McConnell, according to the Washington Post, is kind of backing Trump's efforts to contest the loss. Almost all Republican senators are with him, but many have remained silent. I think it's only four GOP senators. The latest is Susan Collins, who won a not as close as we expected race in Maine for re-election, who have congratulated Joe Biden on his victory. McConnell said on the floor that the president is 100% within his right to pursue recounts and litigation. And that is true. Uh, McConnell did not repeat Trump's baseless assertions that fraud had cost him the election, but he said he had met with William Barr earlier in the day. Now, don't you think a lot of people are going to say, hmm, Mitch McConnell is backing the president, William Barr announces that the U.S. attorneys can conduct these limited investigations, Barr just met with McConnell. Of course, appearance-wise, it's awful. It's like Bill Clinton meeting with Loretta Lynch on the plane while his wife is running uh, for president and you had all those investigations going on. It doesn't look good. Meanwhile... Uh, you have other Republican officials like the two senators from Georgia, both of whom are headed for runoffs, and control of the Senate will hinge on those two Georgia races. You'll hear nothing but Georgia, Georgia, Georgia when we get around to January. And I think the likelihood of the Democrats winning one, or, or and certainly not both those races, is extremely slim. Anyway, they are demanding the resignation of Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, Raffensperger, excuse me, who's also a Republican, Why? What was his sin? His office said there was no evidence of widespread fraud in Georgia. So GOP turning on GOP. Um, Meanwhile, there was a refiling or an expanded filing in Pennsylvania, um, uh, part of a legal effort to ultimately get the Supreme Court to throw out mail ballots in Pennsylvania received after election day. Even that, according to this post story, is a small number of votes that state officials said would not be enough to change the outcome. But as I recall, Pennsylvania had uh, permission from the the Supreme Court on a 4-4 ruling not taking the case um, to receive mail ballots for three days after Election Day. Behind the scenes, Trump advisors and allies are increasingly resigned to a Biden victory, according to people familiar with the internal discussions. But few so far are actively discouraging the president or his campaign from pursuing all legal paths. Maybe they feel like, look, he's just got to get out of his system, let him pursue these legal remedies. Ultimately, reality will set in because it's not, even if they have some success, some limited success, it's not gonna be enough to overturn Biden's lead in all of these key states. One senior Republican official, who didn't put his name to the quote, telling the Washington Post, what is the downside for humoring him for this little bit of time? No one seriously thinks the results will change. He went golfing this weekend. It's not like he's plotting how to prevent Joe Biden from taking power on January 20th. He's tweeting about filing some lawsuits. Those lawsuits will fail. Then he'll tweet some more about how the election was stolen. And then he'll leave. Pretty cynical view from unnamed Mr. Senior Republican official, I must say. Um, Oh, here's the the new filing in Pennsylvania. Alleging again that some counties had improperly allowed voters to fix problems on mail ballots. Claim that was, by the way, thrown out last week. Also falsely claiming, as the Post says, that observers were not allowed to watch the processing and counting of ballots. I think there was a dispute about how many could watch and did they need to be six feet away, but they did watch on both sides. Also complicating the effort. Dave Bossy, uh, president of Citizens United, former deputy campaign manager for Trump in 2016, big supporter of the Trump president, guy I know quite well, former Fox News contributor. He had been tapped to lead the legal effort. He's not a lawyer, but he was gonna be in charge of the strategy for this entire legal effort. But he, unfortunately, has tested positive for COVID-19. So he's had to step aside from that because he has to quarantine, and I wish Dave Bossie well. Uh, also, Ben Carson, the former presidential candidate, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, also, and a neurosurgeon, testing positive for COVID-19. I think what both of them have in common is they both went to the, the, the White House election night party uh, where the president hoped he would have good news to celebrate. And I don't know, just to see Dr. Carson, I, you know, maybe he was distancing, maybe he was wearing a mask. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but it's, keep, it's happening just as it happened to five people in Pence's office, just as it happened to Mark Meadows, just as it happened to Hope Hicks and Stephen Miller and a lot of people in the president's orbit. Uh, thereby underscoring the importance of the coronavirus, which we'll get to in the next segment. Meanwhile, as far as the president, you know, it's being harmless what he's doing, you have an administrator, the head of the GSA, that's the General Services Administration. It's an unglamorous agency that actually has a lot of power because it controls federal buildings and paper and and all kinds of stuff. In a fairly unprecedented situation, Emily Murphy, who is routinely supposed to issue what's called a letter of ascertainment, which enables Biden's transition team to begin trying to deal with the transfer of power. But she is refusing to do that. She has to formally recognize him as the incoming president. Obviously, the White House told her no way, no how. And so the effect of this is that the GSA will not cooperate which means that all these teams, you have, you know, Trump had this in 2016, uh, Obama had it in 2008. You have teams dealing with every single agency, state, defense, DOJ, Treasury, you know, EPA, whatever. And their people go in and they talk to their counterparts, the people who are running these agencies and departments who are leaving, and they look at documents and they find out where the bathroom is and they get some advice on what the issues are that are pending, what's on the plate. And it's a crucial part of a transition. Remember, you're, you're, you're taking over an entire government in two and a half months, not an easy thing to do. GSA not cooperating, and that is, needless to say, pissing off the Biden team. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, story number three is the coronavirus. And man, that is becoming a much bigger story, much bigger story. So I talked last week about the record setting 132,000 new cases in one day. Another day was 126,000. I think right now, of yesterday, it was 130,000. Uh, the way, uh, another way to look at it is that the U.S. overall, if you just look at the past week, averaging 111,000 cases every day. That's compared to, it was like 50,000 um, as the summer was ending, and that was a bit of a surge. Uh, also, we've reached 10 million people, 10 million Americans, who've had the coronavirus Um, What Joe Biden is doing is two things. He's acting as the president-elect. He gave a speech yesterday, which I'm going to talk about, about coronavirus. He's scheduled to give another one uh, today about Obamacare, which is up for review by the United States Supreme Court. So Biden is doing this for two reasons. One is we're in the middle of a a freaking pandemic, and he wants to do what he can now that he has a little bit more weight. People are paying more attention because he has been declared the winner of the election to try to uh, encourage people Um, to act as he thinks they should act. Here's the quote. It doesn't matter who you voted for, where you stood before Election Day, Biden said. In Delaware, he announced this uh, COVID-19 advisory board. It doesn't matter your party, your point of view. We can save tens of thousands of lives if everyone would just wear a mask for the next few months. Not Democratic or Republican lives, American lives. Um, And Biden said a lot of this before. But now he's saying it as the guy who will be running the government next January 20th. And he talked about a mask is not a political statement, and it really will save lives. Uh, so he's doing that to try to get a change in behavior because he's going to inherit a terrible pandemic and a wounded economy. The sort of good news here, but I've learned more about this, is Pfizer announcing. And by the way, I think um, somebody on Trump's behalf took a shot, and maybe it was Trump in a tweet said, oh, you know, I said they would hold this back till after the election. Pfizer said that is completely untrue. The the head of the company said he didn't even know about the latest results until Sunday afternoon. It had nothing to do with the election. And Pfizer uh, is working on a vaccine that has had more than 90% success. Um, the problem here I've since learned is that, and maybe I mentioned this, um, in order to store this vaccine before it's given to people and you have the whole question of how to distribute it and will people trust it, it's gotta be stored at something like 94 degrees below zero. And so obviously, there are not a whole lot of hospitals or facilities that have that kind of refrigeration capacity. So that's a problem you also have to take it twice, once and then three weeks later. So it's not like it's coming on the market tomorrow, uh, but it is sort of the first good news of the market shot up yesterday by like 1,200 points in the, in the Dow. And it was maybe partially having to do with uh, uh, the uncertainty of the election results being removed, but also because of this vaccine. Andrew Cuomo, the New York governor, raising doubts that the Trump administration could handle the vaccine distribution, even if this vaccine does become available in the coming weeks. He says governors will have to stay in. Cuomo is saying on GMA, Trump administration is rolling out the vaccination plan and I believe it's flawed. They're basically going to have the private providers do it. And that's gonna leave out all sorts of communities, Cuomo says, that were left out the first time when COVID ravaged them. Um, That's up for debate, but I do think government needs to be involved. I'm sure the governors will be involved and the federal government should be involved as well. Um, Whether that happens, Given the the uncertainty, the aura, the environment surrounding the disputed election, I have no idea. But that's where we are now. Some good news, some caveats, and uh, an incoming president urging people, please, social distance, please wear a mask. Because, you know, it became this thing throughout the campaign. Everywhere Biden would go, he'd wear this black mask. And he would be distant, and he didn't have the big rallies. And everywhere Trump would go, Occasionally he wore a mask like he'd visit a hospital or something, but obviously he didn't. Obviously he got COVID-19. Obviously many people in the White House, as I mentioned earlier, got COVID-19. And he held the big rallies. And there is some evidence, I don't think it's definitive, that, you know, when he held these big rallies, that the COVID-19 cases would spike in those communities. Can you prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt? Not necessarily. But certainly the president's critics were he shouldn't be holding these rallies. He thought politically they'd be good for him. Uh, They projected energy. He was hoping four or five rallies a day in the closing days of the campaign when Biden was keeping a lighter schedule. Nonetheless, that wasn't enough to turn the tide for him. But maybe, just maybe, it made the election closer than most in the media had expected, based also in part on a bunch of lousy polls. Not all the polls, but some of the polls were just way, way off. And that's another industry that has a black eye in the wake of November 3rd. All right, story number four. Mark Esper, the defense secretary, was fired yesterday by the president. Now, I have several reactions to this. One is, if the president had been reelected, this would be a bigger deal. uh, But also, in a way, routine, because uh, every president who's reelected has the right to ask for the resignations of all the cabinet members and the heads of departments and so forth, so he can decide who he wants to keep and who he wants to let go that can be pretty routine, the, uh, the requesting of the resignations. In Mark Esper's case, though, it was clear this was coming. In fact, right after the election stories were put out, oh, Esper has prepared his resignation letter, because Mark Esper, who has been running the Pentagon since last year, um, after the departure of Jim Mattis, he broke with President Trump during those protests when he said quite firmly and quite clearly that he did not want the military to be involved in maintaining law and order in urban America during these protests, that he did not see that as the role of the military. The president was infuriated by that. Uh, Esper also seemed to be critical of that, what happened when, when both military and National Guard were used to clear out Lafayette Park, across the street from the White House, so the president could walk to that, that church around the corner from the White House, which had been damaged by fire and hold up a Bible and try to seize that moment. And ever since then, they've had a rocky relationship. No question about it. So, Esper gave an, uh, an interview the day after the election to the Military Times, which notes, by the way, that he went nearly underground. Uh, the last Pentagon briefing Esper uh, hosted was in July. He did bring along reporters on his trips, but he wouldn't do any on the record interviews. Um, and um, he was sort of expecting this, he didn't know quite, quite when. He said, uh, I have many goals here, transforming the direction of the depart- department protecting the institution, which is really important to me. That's code for not letting the president screw around with the military. And then fourth, I should say, preserving my integrity in the process. Now, he had been dubbed Yesper by his critics, but he took umbrage with that. He said he wasn't anybody's yes man. He said, my frustration is I sit here and say, hmm, 18 cabinet members. Who's pushed back more than anybody? Name another cabinet secretary that's pushed back. He tells the Military Times, have you seen me on a stage saying under the exceptional leadership of blah, 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 we have blah, blah, blah. No. You mean, look, my soldiers don't get to quit, he said. So if I'm going to quit, it better be over something really, really big. And otherwise, look, I'm going to do what I've always done, which is try and shape it the best I can. Now, given the expectation that Joe Biden will take over on January 20th, really what President Trump has done uh, because he's been angry at Esper, is to say, I want you out of there 10 weeks before you otherwise would have had to leave. And I think we'll see other firings. We may see the firing of Christopher Ray at the FBI. We may see the firing of Dr. Fauci, who, if I had to guess, I think would probably be promptly rehired by Joe Biden. Uh, we may see the firing of Regina Haspel at the CIA. I don't know. Um, the president makes news when he does this. I guess it's payback. Payback is part of politics. These are his appointees. He's every right to do it. Now, again, if he thinks that somehow he's going to turn this around and have a second term, then, okay, get rid of the people you don't like and bring in the people you do like. You don't even need to do it for cause. You get the, These people are political appointees. They serve at the pleasure of the president. But if he actually kind of realizes he's on his way out, and to kick them out 10 weeks early, I don't know, probably makes him feel good. But in the long run, doesn't matter much at all. And finally, story number five. And story number five has to do with John Meacham. And I have to preface this by saying I've known John Meacham for many, many years. I knew him when he was a sort of a young uh, wunderkind editor at Newsweek. I knew him and interviewed him many times when he became the editor of Newsweek. Uh, I have known him uh, working at a major publishing house. Um, I've just known him... You know, because he's because he got into national journalism at a young age, I mean, I've just known him like a lot of reporters for a long time. I have a lot of respect for him. I just, by coincidence, finished his... He also has become a biographer. He wrote a very fair biography, by the way, though he's clearly very liberal and was at Newsweek. A uh, very fair biography of George H.W. Bush, which Bush 41 cooperated with. And I just happened to finish his biography of Andrew Jackson, which is just terrific. It's just a fabulous read. But... John Meacham has done something that I don't approve of, that I have to criticize him for. And it, to its, to the New York Times credit, the Times broke the story. Now everybody knew that Meacham, through his many appearances on Morning Joe and other MSNBC programs, um, couldn't stand President Trump. Absolutely clear. And once Joe Biden won the nomination, he made clear that he was a big supporter of Joe Biden. He actually kind of endorsed Joe Biden. And then, and I didn't agree with this either, John Meacham, you know, has his lifelong career as a journalist, goes to the Democratic convention and gives a speech for Joe Biden. When you do that, you're a player. You know, uh, has it happened with people at the Trump convention? Yes. But I just, he, um, he's somebody who I know values uh, journalistic fairness and integrity. And I thought it was a real misstep for him to go speak at the Biden convention. He did it. It wasn't that big a deal to most of the liberal media. But it was a big deal to me. But now here's the thing from the Times story. Meacham, who's been friends with Biden for years, had a hand in crafting many of Biden's biggest speeches, according to multiple sources, including helping to write or at least helping to edit the acceptance speech that Biden delivered Saturday night in Wilmington, his first speech as president-elect. And in fact, the speech talked about we're in a battle for a soul of America. And it just so happens that John Meacham's 2018 book was titled The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. Um, and so Meacham has been playing a larger role, according to the Times, than was previously known, writing drafts of speeches and offering edits on others, including a speech Biden gave in Gettysburg last month and his acceptance speech at the DNC. I didn't know that either. So uh, Meacham didn't just speak at the DNC, he helped Biden write his DNC speech. Uh, Now, here is Biden's spokesman, T.J. Ducklow. President-elect Joe Biden wrote the speech he delivered to the American people on Saturday night. Given the significance of the speech, this is where he kind of confirms it, he consulted a number of important and diverse voices as part of his writing process, as he often does. A Biden official, not named, said that Mr. Meacham was involved in discussions about themes in the victory speech. Meacham declined to comment. Um, And so as a result now, Meacham has lost his position as a paid contributor to MSNBC and NBC. As of Monday, according to two people at the network, he was not a paid contributor. He will come back as a guest, and that's okay. And then he's coming back as a Biden partisan. He's a smart guy. People want to interview him. But as a result of this, I think NBC and MSNBC did the only things they could. You can't have somebody on the payroll as a contributor. I mean, it's one thing to offer informal advice, although I, as an old-fashioned journalist, don't even like that. But if you're actively helping to write speeches, this happened to George Will in 1980. Um, he lo- several newspapers dropped his column because he was close to Ronald Reagan, and he helped Ronald Reagan write um, his speech, I believe, the one he delivered on election night. And then he went on ABC and praised the speech. And it was an absolute journalistic no-no. So what happened here, according to the Times, Meacham appeared on MSNBC before and after the Biden Saturday night speech. Brian Williams said to him, I'm not the historian that you are. I don't have the Pulitzer that you do. But do you concur that this is the way we're used to hearing from our presidents? Absolutely, Meacham said, but he didn't say he was involved in writing the speech. Had he just said that. Make a disclosure. Look, i got to tell you, Brian, I played a role in this, but I have to also tell you as a prize-winning historian, I think it was a great speech. you got to disclose it. He didn't disclose it. I wish he had disclosed it, and I think NBC and MSNBC did the right thing. Well, that wraps it up for now. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. You know, go to Apple, iTunes, FoxNewsPodcast.com or ask for it on your Amazon device. More tomorrow when we'll see you back here with more BuzzFeed.